The city of Atlanta is a cursed chalice. I mean, I don't understand why anybody would want to run for office right now. I mean, cities are pulling out. There's just all kinds of economic despair going on in the city. It hasn't been super well managed. And you've got a mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who looked at the situation and said, I'm out of here. I'll see you later. Walgreens is calling. Nolan, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Let me tell you, were you as surprised as I was to see the mayor just like one day just be like, I'm out of here? Yeah, I mean, it, it was wild to me because, you know, just two or three weeks before that, like the president of the United States was fundraising for a city mayor. And then right. a few weeks later, she's out of the race. It's also important to remember that like Keisha Lance Bottoms was day one for Joe Biden. I mean, she was a very early supporter. She was even like considered like an outside vice presidential pick. In fact, I thought that she actually was going to be his choice. Not so much, but she yeah. was very high up in, but my point being, you know, and she was on the list for HUD secretary. She's very high up in Biden world. Um, and for her to leave for the private sector is maybe a little bit surprising. Yeah, I mean, still to be determined what she's going to do next, because the Walgreens thing happened to be just a rumor. Yeah, so I know. We still fit. actually don't know what Keisha's going to be doing. Yeah. And what's wild to me is, I mean, the corporate Dems love Keisha. Like, Keisha is the perfect corporate Democrat. <laughs> and it's wild to me that she decided to get out of this race. I mean, she well, probably would have won in Atlanta. Uh, yeah, again. <laughs> she would. Well, first of all, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Uh, first of all, she's super funny when off script. She's a great politician. Like, she's mayor for a reason. She's mm -hmm. like, you know, whatever. But she's way more talented than the field. And she definitely was going to be reelected. The problem is, I think, like, once you get in there, it's a bad. Like, we're really going through trauma in the city. Like, being elected city of Atlanta mayor. Given what we are, what the people are going through right now, how important is it? Like, it's a rough experience. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, a good friend of mine was talking about this. It was actually Asia Arnold from the main line. Uh, they do a really great Atlanta politics wrap up every Friday. If you all haven't subscribed to the main line podcast, I highly recommend. But Asia was talking to me about it. And she said, you know, Atlanta has been branded falsely, of course, as the city too busy to hate. And then she said, but I mean, truly, we're the city that's too busy to heal. And I think that that right there is a hard truth to deal with about our city when it comes to our city's politics, when it comes to our city's politicians. Gentrification, corporatism, I mean, neocolonialism is gentrification, but neocolonialism, anti-blackness, like all of that has been wrecking our city for, I mean, decades. And then you've got the pandemic coming in, more people becoming unsheltered and unhoused, and we're just moving right on with everything and, and in, including with this mayor's race. I mean, nobody is just getting up and saying, can we stop and can we think about working people? Can we think about the people that we're displacing? No, it, it's how can we get Microsoft further into this city? How can we get more people from out of town to move in here? Like we're just moving right along. Honestly, like I think so many people in town, just as somebody who lives here, do the hard work of daily organizing that people in the national media pretend that they want. When I talk to people like, you know, on the national media stage and they talk about what they want from organizing and what they want from movement building, it's often, is it black led? It's often, is it volunteer run? Is it campaigning to put pressure on politicians directly? Is it not like part of some NGO? 
HBO media complex? Is it not like some person's vanity letterhead with like a few thousand social media followers? Dark has been like one of those organizations and done that work. And when me, as you know, I am an organizer, but I'm also like half talking head. When I go in talking head places, one of the first things that I think about and talk about is the work that Dark is doing. Chana's here. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. I apologize for such a long wind-up to get to you. Oh, no, that's fine. I'm good. I love it. I wanted, because we have, like, people who are, like, all of us are talking about this experience because we live it. But, like, lots of people are not in Atlanta. They don't know what the current political environment is. They don't know what's going on with the police budget. So, Shanna, I really was grateful to set the stage here and talk a little bit at, about Atlanta because we've got a national audience. But now that we have, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and your work. Yeah, sure. So my name is Chana. Um, I live in Midtown Atlanta, and we've got a lot of work uh, going on, a lot of good organization happening. Um, I work primarily with DARK, which is Defund APD Refund Communities, and a group called Abolition Apostles, which has a Georgia chapter and a national chapter as well, um, where we do support of people on the inside through pen palling and reentry and mutual aid and things like that. Nolan, you're here too, and I don't know if you formally introduced yourself. I don't think I did, but hey, y'all, I'm Nolan. I am an organizer with Dark. I'm on the core team. I'm a PhD candidate. I am doing research on building the abolitionist narrative in the city of Atlanta. So that's a pretty fun research to be doing. I do some freelance work with the main line. I'm a filmmaker and I have a really cute dog. That's pretty much me. That sounds just incredible. What made police abolition so urgent this year? Well, I would say definitely don't think you can talk about what's happening in this moment without paying tribute to people who've been working on this for decades. I think we're building on a long history of Black radical organizing. And we've reached this flashpoint where you had, of course, last of the protests. Um, you've got a perfect storm with all of the mounting like income and inequality that's really present, particularly in Atlanta. And people are finding an outlet. They're connecting with this history of work that's been ongoing to be able to move forward and make these very clear demands of our city to put us on a better path moving forward. Nolan, what has been one of the biggest challenges that you faced uh, during your time at Dark? What stood out to you that was harder than you thought it would be? Oof. What a question. Um, before starting to organize, I think that I had this false impression that political organizing was about getting the right people in office and then getting those right people who are in office to listen to you. And then they will do what you ask them to do because it makes sense. And to be clear, abolition is very practical. Abolitions will save lives. Abolition will bring more power to the working class. It will help us create economies and really communities of care and uh, harm reduction, but also like transformational justice. Like abolition is a very practical thing that has very practical benefits for communities. And I thought, you know what? We could just like convince people of that. And the truth is that political organizing is about power, like plain and simple. And when we're talking about organizing with dark, especially around organizing to defund the police, the police state, the police foundation, 
Republicans have so much power in our city, especially in Atlanta. And and I guess when I first got into abolition, I didn't realize how much work is going into reducing the size, the power, and the scope of the police state. And especially because they have their hands in everything. This year, we found out, I mean, there was literally a coordinated campaign on behalf of six or seven public officials where they all ran this tough on crime narrative. And then at the end of it, they said they all said the same thing. They went on the record saying the same thing. And they said, our police need our help. They are under-resourced and overwhelmed. Six or seven public officials going on the record, multiple, multiple news outlets, including national news outlets, saying the same exact thing. You're starting to realize that, oh, like maybe this is big than any one of these politicians and convincing him. There's there's a lot of power that is organized to hold up this police state, and we are going to have to organize a lot of people power in order to to make any progress toward our goals of abolition. So I'd say that that's probably the biggest like challenge that I've seen. And can I just add to what Nolan said? Another number is that something recently that came out in the AJC, I believe, is that funding represents 33 of the budget that our city spends. So like Nolan is saying, everything comes back to the really intense, overblown presence that police have in every aspect of our city rather than so much more that a third of a budget could be spent on. That people, when we went canvassing just last weekend, were telling us they'd like to see that money spent on, you know, youth centers, be sent on, spent on infrastructure, better highways. Um, there are so many other things that people would like to see that money spent on. You know, I was doing a canvas uh, in Adamsville talking about the budget and Dark had a script that they were using. And, you know, myself, I am from a religious organization, actually, you know, Jehovah's Witness. So I'm doing field, you know, I've got field service technique. And the thing that I used to open with people was like the police budget is set to go up 6% this year. How do you feel about it? And I was really able to very quickly determine like who could be moved based on how they felt about the budget. If they thought, well, you know, I'm all for stability. 6% extra seems like a bit much. I know how to talk to that person. If they say, you know, oh, I love the police. I think it should be even more. You know how to talk to that person. Talking about the material impact that that kind of financial approval has on us is, I think, a really quick way to separate the wheat from the chaff, recruit, determine, understand people. Yeah, and I think more people are open to really having a conversation about this um, when you do give them actual numbers. One of our demands is actually to put it into propaganda. And that's a primary reason is that a lot of people have been raised or socialized to believe that the police are the answer to all of their problems. But when they look around the city of Atlanta and see all the problems that we still have, as soon as they hear how much of that budget is going to police and how much city council thinks it's a good idea to raise the budget more <laughs> so the police can continue doing more of the same, people are very much like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. We wouldn't keep giving money to anything that was repeatedly failing. That's just not something we would do in any other context. Um, and that's really important when you're talking to people as well as just acknowledging that when people have the facts, most of the time they can understand what we're asking them is to just imagine a better world, a world that's safer, a world that would actually meet the needs that they have. Chenna, you put together a movie. <laughs> uh, there's a movie called Not Our Budget that elucidates this concept uh, in some depth. Can you talk about who came up with the, the idea and how you think it'll do? I know you probably are hurrying to pass credit to Nolan, who did obviously tons of great work, but can you talk about the foundation of it from your personal experience? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, like you said, definitely all credit to Nolan Gentry um, and a few other people who are very heavily involved in that process from the, you know, creation of the idea to moving through with all of the, you know, videography and all that kind of stuff. But from what I understand, sort of in the dark meetings we were having when this idea was first being proposed is more that we just think that city council has this outsized voice on how to solve issues in Atlanta or how to solve quote unquote crime. Um, and we'd like them to look at harm. And so I think the idea behind the Not Our Budget campaign really started from this idea of, like we were saying with canvassing, when you go and talk to people on the street, most Atlantans understand themselves as like more powerful at creating a safer society than this arbitrary force that we give all this weaponry and militarize and have go beat up a bunch of protesters every summer. Like that's, that's not something we want to see. So we really wanted to make space for people to have their voices heard. And this is, of course, a small sampling, like Atlanta is much bigger than just the folks in this video. But these are the people who are regularly in contact with organizers in the community, in contact with different communities across the city and have an opportunity to really talk to some of the most vulnerable populations and hear from people directly what they need. So I'm hoping we might even be able to do more of these at some point or something like that. But yeah, Nolan, tell us more. Yeah, Nolan, I, I've just been so hyped up to hear about how you made that because I'm not saying that it's shot like Tenet or anything, but it's such a clean, simple, watchable, any age can understand kind of production. So yeah, talk about what it took for you to make it because we have, like I said, lots of people watch the show that are organizers. Yeah, I don't really want to go too much further without giving a shout out to Jasmine Burnett. She is a core team member for Dark and a core organizer with Dark. And the not our budget idea came from her. And she she was like, look, that is that's our narrative because this budget is, you know, it's a gentrifier's budget. It is the big business budget. It is, you know, the budget of basically the people who have their own personal self-interest at heart. You know, it's the nonprofit profit executives budget foundations budget it, it's the you know sports teams budgets but it is not our budget like it is not the budget of specifically black atlantans more broadly working atlantans poor atlantans like it's just not our budget and the city council centers the voices of those who have the most power in our city and they have for decades and so that's kind of where the idea came from and and i want to give a shout out to jasmine on that and from there she was like how can we amplify the voices of the people that city council repeatedly fails to listen to fails to center and that's where gentry staten and i were like i mean we could we could make a film let's make a film <laughs> and so we chose a day where we hosted something we like to call a story drive uh, it's kind of like a blood drive where people can come through and just at some point during one day and donate their stories to the campaign and so that's what we did we had about 12 people come and donate their stories to the not our budget campaign they showed up at Park Avenue Baptist Church with about a 30 minute period and we interviewed them uh, with a kind of two camera setup three-point lighting if you want to get technical with it like that and we just asked them you know why you know who are you and what's your relationship to the city of atlanta then we asked them you know what issues they care about in the city of atlanta and then why is this not our budget and then finally what would you rather see investment in than policing and the answers that people gave the ideas that people gave the reasons that people have i mean are, are just beautiful and, and it's something that we realize that especially around abolition especially around defunding the police we have 
have to control this narrative because the mainstream media and the corporate Democrats and like all of these big business groups like have so much vested interest in this police state that like they're working really hard to control the narrative. And so this film is hopefully a pushback on that. Film was also created with uh, the intention of playing it at uh, like a live viewing at Noni's, which we had last Sunday, last Sunday night. And that was awesome. We had 60, 70 people come out to the viewing. We had some speakers and it, it was just a really good time to sit down and just hear all these ideas about what abolition in Atlanta could look like. So I'm really proud of the film. I'm really proud of our team and I'm proud of the the impact that, that hopefully it'll have uh, going forward to building abolitionist narratives in the city. And can I just add, as one of the people who was interviewed, they did such a good job, um, Jasmine, Gentry, and Nolan. And I think it's a testament to the power of organizing over any other kind of sort of formation of whatever. It's just that we're all people who sort of just voluntarily were like, we care about this issue. We want to come together and figure out how to like move forward. And so it really is like this piggybacking thing where Jasmine has a great idea. And then we have people who have this technical skill set executed and i think that's why dark has been so successful along with you know all the other organizations in atlanta at really getting together and building like a mounting like this really powerful movement i want to talk about coalition building because i think that that's you know i was interviewing uh alan max axelrod illinois and they're doing a campaign on Ameren shutoffs, utility shutoffs in Illinois. And he put together, he, you know, was helped to put together like 40 different groups in a campaign across the state. And we talked a little bit about the mechanics of building that kind of coalition. What has it been like for y'all to organize with other groups? Uh, what have been the strengths, weaknesses, pitfalls, techniques, uh, anything about that? Yeah, I mean, Believe it or not, there's a pretty good abolitionist like infrastructure bubbling up in Atlanta. You know, we had uh, Aaron Thorpe, formerly Posada's Trap God on Twitter, now Thatia Stevens. Aaron was one of the uh, featured guests on the film, and he said something that I think is really important. He said, if the revolution's going to start somewhere, it's going to start in the South. And I that's like really resonated with me. And I think we're seeing the foundation of that being set. I mean, we have almost 30 different organizations, you know, everybody from the Palestinian youth movement to Park Avenue Baptist Church and everybody in between, all kinds of organizations signing on to our demands for a safer Atlanta and just working alongside these groups, like as we built out, like what does a path to abolition look like in Atlanta has been, I mean, truly coalition building has been incredible. It's been great to like continue building these relationships uh, with these groups. So for us, I mean, the groups are there and it's about trying to figure out ways that we can show up for each other, live in solidarity with each other. You know, this Saturday coming up, we're going to be standing alongside the uh, Palestinian youth movement and Atlanta DSA as we demand an end to the Gilly program, the Georgia International um, Law Enforcement Exchange that where our police officers get trained by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. So it's really about, I mean, building solidarity. Yeah. Could either of you, because again, all of our audience isn't in Atlanta, could you explain Gilly and what that entire program is and some of the history of like petitioning the mayor on this and the many faith groups that have worked together on Gilly? 
Yeah, I mean, what Gilly was founded in um, 1992 in Atlanta. Uh, it was started by Robert Friedman, who is an anti-Palestinian activist um, from the Israeli embassy here. And it's again, it's called the Georgia International Law Enforcement Exchange Program, where thousands of police officials from across Georgia, including members of APD, um, including members of GSP, including members of the Georgia State, like the university police as well, go to Israel to train with Israeli police officials officials. They learn tactics like excessive force, uh, the way that the Israeli military brutalizes Palestinians uh, with methods like shooting to kill and putting knees on necks. Lethal force methods are imported and used on, I mean, honestly, on black communities here in Atlanta. And we've seen that happen over and over again, where, I mean, they literally treat especially black citizens in Atlanta like there's a war going on against them. And then it's built on racial profiling and all of the things that, that the Israeli occupation is built on. And, and I want to draw a really clear connection here that I don't think we talk about enough when it comes to policing, but colonialism requires a military force to enforce it, to drive the people who are previously like occupying the land out as new people come in. We're, we've watched that over and over again as the Israeli military, as the Israeli state continues to occupy Palestine and drive Palestinians off of their land, kill Palestinians, import an apartheid state. We're watching colonialism happen through the Gilly program, through APD. Uh, when we look at gentrification in Atlanta, we have people moving in to the city and acting like when they buy a house in Atlanta, especially white people, but not exclusively, when they buy a house in Atlanta, they have an entire militarized police force that they can call on their black neighbors to police surveilled and honestly drive them out. And we're watching this colonialism of sorts happen in gentrification in Atlanta. And there's a lot of parallels to the way that that's happening in Israel. Of course, it's not nearly the same thing, but there are a lot of parallels and their tactics are so similar. And a lot of that is because of this Gilly program. Chana, what has been something that you thought was gonna be uh, really hard organizing that winded up easy? Can you think of anything that was easier than you expected? <laughs> Honestly, besides like the emotional toll of like what we're dealing with and like, you know, just how awful our current society is and how we're trying to change literally every aspect of that and how daunting it is. Besides that, <laughs> um, it's actually been a lot easier than I thought in terms of like just jumping in. Um, I'm one of those people who is radicalized. I was of last summer's protest and sort of hearing about eight to abolition and things like that, that sort of got me really rethinking, you know, how I moved in this world. But honestly, every aspect of getting to know people and sort of just showing up and being like, hey, you know, everyone's like all hands on deck and you just show up and people are like, great, you know, here's your part. You can help do what you need to do. And I've actually found that to be really reaffirming in this process that people can be so open to like organizing with and thinking through things with people who just show up and say, hey, I live here i want to be a part of like the world that we're trying to build so i'll tell y'all a story like a month ago i was really looking into church organizing uh you know i'm uh, in atlanta dsa and they're trying to kind of meld the online and offline experiences you know um and churches of course have been doing that for a long time and at a much larger scale when i saw that not our budget had been shot at park avenue baptist church which is a church i was already somewhat aware of i said ah that's pretty cool. I should reach out to those folks and see who they know at Park Avenue Baptist. And it turns out both of you are members of that church. I was just incredibly shocked uh, that both of y'all were members of Park Avenue Baptist. That's pretty cool. 
Absolutely. Glad you reached out. (laughs) Yeah, Park Ave is, I don't want to say progressive because that's a very watered down, useless kind of term at this point. But we are actively working together to make it a abolitionist church. Uh, So Park Ave already has a bunch of services for people in the community. They have a food pantry, um, a clothing closet for people who might need certain clothing for job interviews or things like that. There's also a shelter for LGBTQ youth um, who might be struggling with any number of things. So Park Ave is already embodying what we see as like an abolitionist ethic and how we're moving. Yeah, I mean, I got plugged in with Park Ave because I've been a pastor for the last seven years, kind of got, you know, ran out the door, walked out the door, however you want to say it, kind of in my old church tradition and took a couple months off from church, kind of thinking through what my faith practice was going to look like moving forward and how I could integrate it more with my politics, which is kind of why I was walked out the door at the old place. But Park Ave had just started a sermon series in January on becoming an abolitionist church. And I was like, hey, this this church is radical. Super cool. (laughs) Yeah, the sermons are incredible. And I, I just... I didn't to lift this up, but because the first Sunday that I like attended on Zoom, there was a preacher. Her name's Hannah Williams, or uh, maybe it's not Williams. It's Hannah something. Bowman. Hannah Bowman. That's right. And she just had probably one of the quotes that will sit with me for the rest of my life. And she said this, the church's insistence on the doctrine of hell replicates the dynamics of the prison. The church relies on hell to promote its missionary work and reproduce itself, just as our society of racial capitalism relies on prison to produce the inequalities that drive it. That's off the fucking chain, first of all. When you when someone says that to you, what does it do to your theocratic ideology? Does it reshape it or does it just reaffirm it? I mean, for me, that was a, a reaffirmation. You know, that's something that has been a part of my faith practice and, and a part of the way that I understand the Christian movement and the early church movement to be something that that was about selling off our possessions and making sure everybody has enough. And I mean, very um, what we modern day would call abolitionists, you know, um, socialist, communist, however you want to say that. And so for me, it was like a breath of fresh air. Right. It was like, okay, this is the radical vision that I believe the divine has in the world. I want to lift up that Micah Herskind and Pastor Darcy, they were really instrumental in putting together that series of sermons that were really impactful to me and Nolan. Um, and I think a whole lot of other people. And I just want to point out that there is a major history of the faith tradition being as radical as it should be, you know, in the pattern of Jesus, who's one of the most radical people who ever lived. And that's something that I think Abolition Apostles, which is the other group I was involved with, is also doing really well with on a national scale. And so they're also a good group to look up. Guys, folks, hell is in the Bible, isn't it? I mean, when you read the Old Testament, there's so much of the cycle of transgression and trauma and, you know, temporary healing and a new transgression. Isn't punishment deeply interwoven in how we redeem ourselves from punishment? Do you guys not feel that that is deeply inwoven into what the Bible is? 
I can go first because I'll let Nolan clean it up. <laughs> Nolan's an actual um, minister, so Nolan can really, really speak to this. But from my perspective, I think like anything else, the Bible is subjective. And I think it depends on how you want to read it. And I think white supremacists and national, like American nationalists and folks like that have really hijacked the narrative and left us with that impression. But I would argue that when you're looking at God's love for creation and when you're looking at the fact that of how Jesus lived his life and how he came back down and even broke people out of jails. There are multiple, multiple times in the Bible where people are broken physically out of real, literal jails. The fact that the Christian movement and everything that Jesus was doing with the 12 disciples was never something that the empire was, like the Roman empire was super excited about. Like that's not actually what happened historically. I think that's something we've been robbed of, like understanding because of white nationalism. But I just want to clarify for me, that's not an interpretation I've ever read into it. And I'm really hoping that through folks who, in my opinion, are living out Jesus's life, like really, you know, turning to that example who are organizing for abolition and moving in that direction that you can see some of those examples and some of those Bible studies and things like that and really start to pick apart some of that colonized way of reading faith that we've been like taught and indoctrinated into. But Nolan can definitely give probably better. I mean, no, you you killed it. Like our conceptions of, uh, especially, I mean, I grew up in white evangelical spaces, our conceptions of the divine, our conceptions of Christ, our conceptions of the Bible, how we read it, how we don't, you know, play with it and uh, look at it from different angles. Like all of that has been so tainted by empire and white supremacy. Uh, but but even before white supremacy was a thing, it, it was utilized by the empire. You know, third, fourth century, you, you start seeing Christianity move from this radical movement that was meant to subvert the empire into something that was taken up by the Roman Empire uh, with Constantine. And ever since then, there have always been radical movements of Christianity. They just have not normally been the dominant ones or the ones that, that have been seen as the quote-unquote proper translation or interpretation. But specifically to what you're asking, Brandon, I, I think you're right. I mean, there, there are moments of punishment and retribution throughout the Bible, but there's just as many moments of restoration and transformative justice. And, and I think that you see a wrestle more than anything with that throughout the Old Testament leading up to the life of Jesus. And, and of course, after the life of Jesus, Paul writes, in Christ, we, we see the visible image of the previously invisible God. So now to me, like Christ is what determines which of those kind of wrestling between transformative justice, retributive justice, punishment, etc. Now I think we see in Christ a new way. And, you know, that's kind of how I see it. Nolan, you know, as I've been looking into church organizing, and I told you that was kind of the frame of this whole thing, I ended up looking at a lot of like right-wing churches, which is like where a lot of my thinking on this stuff comes from, because I'm listening to them argue against some of the things that we're talking about here today. And one of the things that I often heard those ministers say was if we are, you know, looking at it from different angles, if we are playing with it, if it is what we want it to be, what meaning do we gain from these things? So often they think of, you know, meaning as coming from authority and time. 
think when I really break apart those talks, they are, hey, this is what's real. And we know it's real because it's been here for a long time. It's real because it's what is. And that moving away from that represents like just a spiritual weakness that whatever the catastrophes of the world, you know, happen really are removed from this original problem in our state. If we're doing what we want, if we're approaching it how we want, if we're thinking about faith as we want, where do we find meaning? I think that's a good question, and I and I want to be clear that that I don't necessarily think this is approaching it how we want to. I mean, to live in opposition to empire is incredibly difficult in, in this racial racial capitalism to live in a way that seeks for transformative justice when someone has harmed us instead of to punish those who have harmed us. I mean, that is incredibly difficult and it is incredibly high calling to live in a way that is literally good news to the poor, that is uh, freedom for prisoners, that is um, recovery of sight, that is setting the oppressed free. I mean, to live in that way is so much more difficult than to live in this like Christian nationalist purity culture, like do this, this, and this, and then you'll go to some better ethereal place away from here when you die. Like it is so much more difficult to work to restore the earth than to work in a way to escape the earth. And so I do not see this as something that is like the way that that I just want to read it. It's just to me a better way. It's a it's a more loving, more justice based way. I, I don't know. I, I'm sure Chana has a lot to say about that too. No, thank you. Amen. <laughs> you really preach. No, I 100% agree. This is like my personal axe to grind on like a daily basis. So I really appreciate the way you put that. And I think the only thing I would add is like, especially as a black person of faith, I think so much about how the black church is constantly ascribing to like white supremacist ideals and teaching respectability politics and then wrapping that up as if, as if it's about faith. Like, oh, you need to behave this way in this society because God would like it. And then like Nolan said, you get to go to an ethereal place. When really what we're saying is like, live the way white supremacists would prefer you live. And then somehow that's going to be honoring God. Um, when most of the time that means, especially for like queer folks, that you have to deny who you are in a lot of different ways. And that's just something that growing up, I think a lot of black children of faith like struggle with is like, you're trying to become this person, you're trying to grow your own identity. And you're constantly told that that's the antithesis of what Jesus would have wanted. And I think that is so incredibly sad. I really hope that more people will start to take on the lens that Nolan is really providing here is that like, to me, sin is white supremacy. Sin is capitalism. Sin is people not having a home to sleep in. Sin is like totally ignoring this beautiful earth that we live on and like ripping it to shreds in every way that we can like that's sin sin is not people like loving who they love you know whatever like those things are arbitrary and like nolan said this idea that we have the perfect blueprint and that's how you're supposed to live and then you'll get into heaven voila you get it is actually super easy <laughs> like that's why people like it i think a lot about like mlk's letter from a birmingham jail where he's like talking about white moderates and like those are the folks i think about who get the most from system where you're just like, here's your little checkoff list, like make sure you don't do this, this or that, and then you're good to go. But that's not actually the work of faith. That's not actually the act of being a good neighbor. That's not actually the good work of being a good person. Oof.
let's say that you are meeting someone on the street who is engaged in the work that you are. They're in a coalition with you and you know, just from their own life and personal organizing history, that they are involved in a fight to better themselves, better each other, better the world. And when you talk to them, they say, what do I need Jesus Christ for? What would your response to those kind of people be? Mm. For me, I believe that following in the way of Jesus is a way, I mean, to approach the work that we do. I, I don't feel any need to evangelize or, or to convert them or anything like that. I would more so just, I my belief is that if they're already working through those things, that the universal Christ, the Christ that has existed uh, since before the inception of the world and who I believe like continues to live on today is already living within them and operating through them, whether or not, you know, they publicly say I'm a Christian, you know, I don't think that that, that necessarily, the divine is already uh, living out of them and through them, and they are connected to something bigger than themselves. And so to me, it's like, I think Jesus is a great figure to get to know and to follow in the way and, and things like that. But I don't feel any need to like convert somebody into that. Yeah, I think obviously Nolan and I come from a very similar theological like way of thinking because I would 100% agree. I have never felt like if people feel secure and happy in who they are as themselves and that they're doing the good work that there's anything missing. I think people are perfect as they are. I think God sees everybody as perfect as they are. How you choose to relate to whatever in the world or whatever forces or not forces that you do or don't believe in, I think that's totally fine. I think for me, it is a defining characteristic of who I am and how I live my life and who I seek to be. But I think everybody has a different journey. So like Nolan's saying, to me, it is a way of relating to our world, but it is by no you know, means the only way of relating to the world. And I think our track record as Christians is not great either. <laughs> so I'm always understanding of folks who might even be skeptical or even negative about Christianity. But I like to be very clear that I don't see myself as a member of a church. I see myself more as a follower of Christ. And I think that can be, you know, a different way of looking at things as well. Listen, this has been pretty great. Nolan, I've heard you talk about political issues. And behind your back, I said he's like a pastor. Little did I know, this, this today, I've just discovered so much about both of y'all. Um, we had, we had, as of this recording, we had Max from the band Eve Six on yesterday for Rachel Kahn's birthday. And uh, he was literally talking a lot about some of the issues that we're talking about. So I hope that this gets edited and goes up really fast so that once you've seen one, you can go watch the other. Nolan, Channa, you guys have anything that you want to plug, promote? Do you guys, you know, anything that's on your minds? The floor's yours. I guess I'll say thanks so much for having us. And if I had to plug something, I would say definitely look up Dark's Demands. Um, we have a website. I think it's Dark ATL, but you'll find it. But we have a list of demands that we think would make us safe for Atlanta. Um, and we hope more people will, you know, engage with that thought process, at least if you're, you know, flirting with the idea of abolition or curious about, you know, how people are tangibly turning that into an actual structure. The demands are a really great place to start. Yeah, absolutely, Chana. The other thing that that I'd really encourage people to do is is watch the film. It's not our budget. Hashtag not our budget on YouTube. And it is, I think, a great film. People like Chana and uh, about 11 other Atlantans just sharing what a safer Atlanta, what uh, an Atlanta that is moving toward abolition could look like. And I, I believe in the show notes of that, you can read our demands for a safer Atlanta. So I would definitely plug 
love that. And just like mutual aid, give to mutual aid. I'm a part of Soul Underground as a mutual aid network. Oh. Uh, and that's just always something that we should uh, <laughs> that we should be giving Don't toward. We gotta hang out because I've been I've been trying to you know we did the panel with Sunny and I've been trying to hang out with them since. And Kyle is also hanging out with them. We all got to get together. This off the wall. Yeah, we need to make it happen. That's really amazing. Listen, Nolan, Chana, it's been great. I can't wait to hang out with both of you again. This has been just another Not Safe for Wonks episode. Uh, I'm so glad to be hanging out with Dark, talking about Not Our Budget. It's on YouTube. It's on Dark ATL. It's in our show notes. It's wherever. Uh, and it's like a model of advocacy that you can use for grassroots campaigns across the country. So uh, check it out. And we'll talk to you again after a while. Bye-bye.